evidence and answers. Padme Lin grew up in a Muslim home, but realized the truth was not in Islam. How did she come to this conclusion? And what led her to discover that the truth was in Jesus Christ? How can we help our Muslim friends find Jesus Christ? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. If you're unable to hear any of this broadcast, all our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, tune in as our host, Pat Sukran, interviews Padme Lin and discusses her journey from Islam to Christianity. Right. From uh, several that I've spoken with, uh, Muslim men can marry outside the Islamic faith because they come under the banner of Islam. But yeah, Muslim so women marry, cannot yeah, marry can, outside they, the faith. So Muslim men can marry a Jewish or Christian woman because they're seen as people of the same faith, of the same book, the holy books. But a Muslim woman can't marry somebody who's Christian or Jewish or anybody else of the faith, period. Yes. Uh, so if you follow that school of thought, but from where I'm from, you just, either gender wouldn't marry somebody from outside the faith anyway. Yes. Now, you know, you growing up as a female in Islam, you know, could you explain that a little bit in many, many women that I've spoken with, uh, it was very restricting and they felt like they were in bondage growing up in those kind of communities. Many felt they were yeah. second class. And, was, you know, yeah. yeah, when they left, they felt a tremendous uh, freedom and dignity there. Is that what you felt? It was really difficult because even though Islam supposedly came through Prophet Muhammad in order so that he could uplift girls so that he could prevent female infanticide from happening in the Middle East, which was happening at the time, I thought that over time, as, as Islam developed, there's this whole thing about women being the property of men, and then they will not see as equal to men. And so, for example, there be there was things that we scripture mentioned in the Quran, and I believe it's Anisa, where if a woman does not come to the bed or to her husband, the angels will curse her all night. And this is, and this is actually a piece of scripture. And then where, for example, a man can take to a woman, his wife, um, like, like I think if I can remember it correctly, like a, like a paddy field with water. And so there's all these things about how you belong to a man, that how if you're not married, you'll be the guardian of your father or your brother. Uh, and so it really is... In, in this day and age, Islam really can come to terms with women who are single, unmarried, and financially independent, because there's no such thing in Islam. You are supposed to come under the guardianship of, of your father or your brother or your uncle or some male person, uh, and to have this female independent thing uh, happening right now, it's just not part of how Islam has evolved. And that to me is very, very interesting. You bring up one good friend of mine, you know, she came out of Islam and you mm -hmm. talk about a passage in the Quran that, you know, also she referred to as well. I think it's chapter two of the Quran where it says your wives are tilth or fields mm -hmm. to be plowed and unto yeah, you. People, so yeah, approach one, your yeah. tilth when and how you will. And uh, I think that's one of the things that uh, you're referring to. They were treated as, as property of the men. And in yeah. Christianity, she found out, such as First Peter, it says, yeah. you know, husbands live with your wives in understanding as co-heirs mm -hmm. of the gift of redemption. Yeah. So it was uh, very, very different. And also when it comes to divorce, it's very hard for a female Muslim to divorce a husband. And a man for men, he can say talaq. Talaq is the word to just have the divorce. And you can send it by SMS, a fax, anything. And he can say after three times. If he says three times, there's no more reconciliation, it's final. But if you do it talaq once, you can maybe 
go away and think about something and then maybe come back and re- then reconcile. But but it's just, for me, it's such impudence that a man can do that. And then, you know, it can really be done through something as callously as just through an SMS. And, and, I, and I think that for, for something as noble as marriage, it shouldn't be broken so easily like that and, and just so with such impudence too. Yes. Now, eventually you left Islam and entered into Judaism. Uh, you yes. talked a little bit about how that happened. Explain that to us. You you saw that being quoted in the Quran and that got you interested in studying the Old Testament. Is that it? Yeah, well, for me, it was, yeah, for me, the Old Testament was really, like, as it uh, then, was really, like, the main source, and, and because I didn't believe in the New Testament as a Muslim, and so I wanted to go back to the source, and, and in Islam, the Old Testament was still considered a part of the holy books, even though Muslims generally have no idea what's in the Old Testament or have never actually read them. And so I went back to the source and started actually, you know, following this Chabad movement and following the teachings and understanding. Of course, it's a very strict understanding of Judaism and you know Judaism is very open you can be an atheist and still be a Jew uh, follow for the faith uh, or you can be really ultra orthodox but, but I thought it was really interesting how it's transmitted as a religion of, through all history over like centuries and I think it's a very beautiful faith and what I really like is that even now as a Christian I can still go back to the Old Testament because we believe in the old and new and so I'm really not, lost nothing there but just gain something new with the old with the New Testament and I'm really really just really happy by that just that's just an amazing amazing thing yes now you spent a few years in Judaism but what is it that got you intrigued about Christianity when you're there steeped in Judaism I think it was for me, it was not, I wasn't there for like long in, in Judaism, it was more like a year. And after I finished the whole cycle of the holidays and I did Pesach, Passover, and I felt it was just too much because as a Jewish woman, you were meant to, you know, clean all the, the crockery and the pots, make sure there was no, nothing left that was had any yeast in them. You had to clean the whole household, burn all the stuff that had any yeast. And it was too much. I was thinking like for a modern working Jewish woman, how do you cope with that? And I know a lot of people I knew in the community were just dealing over they are pots and pans to the rabbi's wife to be cleaned. You had to be terrified by fire. And for me, I was just like, okay, wow, this is just too legalistic. All this, all these rules and all these things that you had to do, and even just to be able to afford. You know, some families, you know, when they're wealthy, they can have a whole kitchen just for Pesach, the use of Pesach, because they they know they know that these pots and pans and, and crockeries had never touched any yeast before and so that's one some people some families have a whole kitchen open just for Pesach and and they were closed on the, the other one and not touch them or not even be in there and for me I was just thought well it's not tenable like this is not the way surely that God wants us to live that is so you know, all, all these rules are there and so I, I was I cast around and I thought okay gosh wow there's only one thing left there's just New Testament left you know among these holy books that I know about and so I decided to give it a try I was I was full of trepidation I must tell you, uh, it was really, ouch, not much of a choice, not much of a choice left. <laughs> yes, you know, those are the experiences that friends that I have that practice Judaism and going to Israel several times, there seems to be, yeah, that sense of futility that really you cannot accomplish and, you know, live consistently all the laws that are required of the Jewish people under the Jewish customs there. And, you know, Mm -hmm. even in Israel, you you know, you can't use a certain elevator on a certain day. You can't drink coffee on a certain day or drink milk or what. And a lot of my Jewish friends there just kind of shake their head and said, ah, but, you know, that's the law. But, you know, hey, 
nobody does it or we can't do it, you know, or. Yeah. And, and and I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really hard for them because they get the chosen people and they have 613 commandments, they're what they call the miserable. And for us, you know, we have the 10 commandments, but they have 613. So just imagine what it means just in, on top of everything. Well, they have 603 extra more compared to us. And you know, for Muslims or Jews, uh, Muslims and Christians, it's, it's 10 commandments. It's very difficult to be able to, to practice the faith fully and just not sin if you are to follow that faith. It's, it's not, it's a beautiful faith, but it's not at all easy to follow. Right. You know, and eventually from Judaism, you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Part of it was reading a the story of Nabil Qureshi and his wonderful story. But yes. also you said you started reading the New Testament. Uh, where'd you start? And what are some of the things that really stood out to you as you began to study the life of Jesus Christ? I, I actually read Luke first because among you know the, all the Gospels, he, he's the one that's more of a historian, so to speak, more of a scientist. He was a doctor. And so I was I was told by my pastor's wife to start reading with him, uh, you know, the first one. And I, and I did that. And it was all pleasing, all an easy read, really. And so for me, it was just the continuance of Bible study and learning and learning about fellowship and learning about what it meant to have the Holy Spirit uh, and worship. And and, and this is new forms of worship, really. Yes, you know, uh, one of the difficulties for me, you know, coming out of Buddhism, number one was Mm -hmm. that salvation seemed to be just way too easy in Christianity. Right, right. Here... God did all the work for us, and we just have to receive it. And I was like, wait a minute, that can't be right. You know, was was that a a stumbling block for you? And another one for me was John 14, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had this idea, God is love, and he'll receive everyone. And suddenly I hear, wait, Jesus is the only way. And those were two stumbling blocks for me. I actually thought he was nervous. No, for me, it was reversed. Uh, that second uh, piece of scripture that you just quoted, for mm-hmm. me, was just a clear way to, to, to him, the Father, as what I already accepted Trinity. And for me, that was fine. That was how what he preached and I will follow. What was the first question that you said earlier? Oh, uh, that what, what it, it seemed about? too easy, you know, that God uh, yeah, did all yeah. the work and I, I just yeah. receive it. In Buddhism, you've yeah. got to work. Yeah, you know, yes. And, and yeah, that's the irony, too, because Muslims and Jews know that Christianity is about salvation. They know that. And then, as, as you know, when I was practicing Judaism, when I was a Muslim, we would, you know, we would say things like, oh, gosh, with the, with the Christians, so easy, just once a week, you know, and then they go to church and they sing, <laughs> uh-huh. and it's so easy. And for us, it's like, oh, it cannot be. So we know that. But, but Muslims and Jews would say it cannot be. You, you actually dismiss it and put it aside because you think it's too easy. And, and, you know, I have friends who went to Christian schools and you see that and you're like, no, it cannot be. This is good. This is too easy. By the way, how many years have you been a Christian? Four years. Four years, yes. And since, you know, receiving Christ, what kind of challenges have you encountered? I think for me, really, it's the calling uh, where I feel that I need to do something about my family and passing a message. And I know it's not incumbent upon me. It's the Holy Spirit and the Lord that will lead us. I still feel, how do you say, that challenge, you know, that it's not the, the most easy thing. And, and I'm just trying to pray and, and you know, let the Lord lead me lead the way. But I still feel encouraged. I feel encouraged more than I feel challenged, you know, like Romans 8:28, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And for me, the kind of work that I do, and also like how I am right now, I just feel that it's, it's just incumbent upon us Christians to really spread uh, His word far and wide and, and to do that in the way that is wise and intelligent does not demote us Christians in, in terms of our values and how we are seen in the world but to kind of propagate love really uh, and to do so in ways that are 
you know, of good counsel. Yes, and, you know, as much as you can, explain to us the kind of work that you're doing now. It's very intriguing and, and seems like very worthwhile uh, kind of endeavors you're involved in now. Yes, I work on child protection, so basically looking at the issue of um, child sex trafficking, child sexual abuse. It's an issue that's really close to my heart, and it's also one that's really important here in the U.S. One in four girls and one in six boys have been sexually abused here, and so the numbers are huge. It's also anywhere else in the world the same, like pretty bad numbers as well, if you can get data that's reliable. And it actually comes across every background, every socioeconomic background, something to do with caste, the status, or, or economic class, nothing like that. And so for me, it's important too, like the kind of work that I do, that I'm able to be compassionate and have sympathy and love for other people. And I think my faith really helps me in this regard. Yes, and, and you're working with very high-level government officials and ambassadors in your organization in this kind of work, aren't you? Yes, I do. And what I do is basically advise uh, the top leadership of my organization on how to deal with in terms of diplomacy or international relations, because some of them may not, it's more of a grassroots organization and they're not being used to being catapulted at a, at a world stage. How do you deal with kings or a head of state or a president or prime minister? How do you engage countries when it comes, comes to lobbying for, say, a convention or, say, child sexual abuse? Uh, so how do you get that started? How do you do that? And so that's really my job. Yes. Now, you know, how's the progress going? I know when I travel to several countries outside the United States, you know, this is just a way of life. In other countries, it's a tremendous uh, income source. And so Mm -hmm. to be trying to shut something like this down would be very uh, uh, dangerous and a very long, tedious kind of operation here. But how is the progress going? It's hard. I mean, uh, some in you know, in the organization that I work for, apparently people have been killed, and and if you're trying to stop child trafficking, it's a lucrative trade, uh, and people don't understand that you know trafficking doesn't just mean about children, but also organs and adults as, as well. And I've seen some really dismal stuff. But I think if you can explain that it's every child's right to be safe and educated, and that it's not just because he or she was born into a poor environment that he or she has to earn a living. But our, our job really on this earth is to protect our children so that they have a right to a safe childhood, educate themselves and be able to be upwardly mobile so they can help others along the way. But I think it takes some kind of education, awareness building to change people, to change things around them and say, hey, this is not what's right. This needs to change because, for example, the concept of karma, you know, in Hinduism, it's accepted that it's what's happened because of what you've done in your previous life. And so it's a bit of an uphill struggle if you're in a kind of society where, where this is not accepted, that then you need to kind of appeal to the human values and say, look, a child is eight years old, why, why he or she's like, you know, cleaning, living in the winter in, in rags and getting a bowl of rice a, a day. And that is not how a child should live and he or she should be in school. And try to appeal to that person's emotions because sometimes it's so steeped in culture that it's really hard to go past that. Yes, you know, and one thing, you know, we emphasize here is that ideas do have consequences. Your worldview, yeah. your religious beliefs, indeed, you know, have consequences and effects. And and you just mentioned, you know, one of them there. But, you know, but also in Islamic communities, you know, Muhammad is the perfect example of, you know, for every Muslim and his favorite wife, Aisha, you know, the Hadith Mm -hmm. records they married at six and consummated the marriage at nine. And Mm -hmm. so that's part of the Islamic culture as well. How are you able to engage those kind of cultures that, you know, you talk about Hinduism, but other cultures, that's just part of the 
in the culture and to you're going to have to really change the whole worldview yeah. of the culture there and their value system. And are these also, and it's also endemic here, Pat, in the U.S. because there's child, there's child marriage. The, the U.S. is the only country in the world that has still not ratified the Convention oh, really? on Child Rights. Oh. Yes, on the rights of the child. The Commission on the Rights of the Child, the CRC, has been ratified by every single country in the world. And the last country was Somalia. And the U.S. still hasn't done so because of religious fundamentalists in this country that want to have, say, child marriages. And so you still have underage children in the states that will marry. And so that's not to say a foreign thing, as it were. It happens even here on this soil. And so, yeah, you, you have to kind of, again, appeal to one's universal value and say, look, the child's too young to get married to say, a much older man. And he or she, she needs to be educated and so that she can, again, um, be able to choose for herself. Because as a child, she doesn't really have much agency uh, and be able to choose freely because there's no consent when you're under 18 years old. For most countries in the world, consent only comes after the child's reach of age. And that, for most countries in the world, would be 18. So, yeah, it's a very difficult thing. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that uh, we teach is that if God does exist... You know, and if it is the God of the Bible, then there is a universal moral law here that applies to all cultures and all people for all time. And part of that universal moral law is the dignity of the child. And it's a moral duty for us to protect children as they are growing up. But you can only appeal to it, you know, when you change the worldview and the moral systems of people yeah. and cultures, as you're talking about, a tremendous challenge for you. It's really hard. I mean, recently I was reading up and I came across this whole thing called spiritual cleansing in Malawi, where in southern Malawi, children are, you know, at the age of eight to 10 years old, both boys and girls are taken to separate camps and then given and taught about sex. So they actually taught how to dance. A girl is taught how to dance underneath the body of another man, but basically they, they role play. And then once they finish that camp, you could take about a week out in the woods. When they come back, they are encouraged to initially have sex with a boy or the boys are encouraged to have sex with a girl. And when they come back to the village, sometimes the children wouldn't do it because they're like, you know, eight or nine or ten years old. So the, the parents would actually employ what the men whom they call a hyena to basically take away the, the children's virginity. And so the hyena would have unprotected sex because they need to remove the children's dust. It's called the child dust. So they have to remove the child dust and get unprotected sex. And in Malawi, 10% of the population have HIV. So imagine my, my rage when I when I read this because I thought I've seen everything else and I've seen, I thought I've seen everything in the world and I come across this and I'm like really there is just there's just no humanity in this because the children themselves don't want it uh, and they have unprotected sex they get HIV some of them get pregnant because there was no condom there were no condoms used and, and basically essentially it was rape was the first experience so how do you do with something like that so it, it really is very very difficult. Yes. What can people do, you know, listening, those of us who are concerned in this whole area to help in in ridding the world of child trafficking? I think for all of us, we have to open our eyes. I think if we... Those of, us who, those of us who live here in the U.S., you will see often enough if you travel through airports where people, you know, there's posters that say, do you, do you see me? Do you look at me? Am I invisible? It's a poster of a girl or a man, you know, hiding and he or she's being trafficked. There are signs of what a person who's being trafficked looks like, and we need to educate ourselves on what that looks like. For example, as the witnesses should be trained so that when they see people traveling on planes or even in bus stations and things like that, you can try and help a child or a young adult when they're being trafficked or even a foreigner who 
doesn't speak English and has been trafficked here to the U.S. So we all can do our part to educate ourselves on the issue. And truly, it's not necessarily a difficult thing if you have to pick up the phone and call the police and say, this is what I've witnessed. Can you please do something about it? And, you know, and pass it on to the authorities. But really, we can be the eyes and ears of the, of the authorities here in the U.S. and trying to prevent such crimes from happening. I think what I find difficult here in the U.S. is that maybe there is the police may not know the difference between prostitution and sex trafficking, and you see forced women being forced into sex, but they may not understand the difference. And there would be some sort of very obvious things, like the documents identity being taken away, the women are living in fear, um, they're hiding, there's obvious signs of abuse. So then these women should then not be prosecuted, but be seen as witnesses to a crime. But that's a very difficult topic here in the U.S., Yes. And so that's a great point you bring up. You know, if you see, you know, a, a man getting on a plane and he's got five young girls that yeah, you know, well, aren't, aren't his yeah, like family. Him, yeah. yeah. You can notify the stewardess and just say, you know, mm-hmm. could you just look into this? And I'm sure yeah. they would be more than happy to do so. So you bring up some great yeah. pointers there. There's actually one example where um, a U.S. diplomat and the U.S. consulate in India actually alerted uh, the authorities because he was going through the documents of four children with an adult who was supposedly going on a school trip to the U.S., but the children all look different to what were on the passports in terms of the passport photos and the children in person, and they all couldn't give a legitimate reason of, of wanting to travel or of, of being at all articulate about wanting to do so. And so and so the, the, men, the person trying to accompany the children was arrested as well as her accomplices, and it turned out to be a, a child trafficking racket. And so every one of us can do our part. And it really is just about being alert, like looking at a child that is sleeping with a man on the train, does he or she look even related? Is she is a child in trauma? Is there something else going on? You listen to your gut, you know, and also, like I said, educate yourself on the issue. Yeah, so those are some good pointers there. Well, you know, as we bring this fascinating show to a close, you have a burden to reach your family and your Muslim friends for Christ. What are some words of advice that you can give to us of how to reach the Muslim community for Christ? I really would just encourage you to read Nabil Qureshi's book. Uh, it's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And there's also a study guide that comes along with it. And it's brilliant because he was a Muslim raised and born and then uh, wrote very distinctly about how he went to his space walk. And he basically raised all the questions that are uh, Muslim would raise, you know, a very rational Muslim would raise, and they're really good questions too. And how to walk that through with a Muslim friend, if you have one. And you must also understand that Muslims revere Jesus. So they see him not necessarily divine, but as a prophet, as a messenger. And so and he, and he in their mind has, hasn't done on the cross, but has been taken to heaven where he resides now, and will come back down when all this is, is over. And so he has a special place in the Muslim mind. And so you need to be able to understand that, understand where, where they come from. And they, the Muslims also fear and, and respect all the prophets, you know, Abraham, all the prophets that came before us. They, they know who they are as well. And they also share the Old Testament, but they're not aware of it. And so there's a lot of commonality, which I think is really a source of joy. And so it's kind of easy in a way to approach the subject if you just know how to do so. And I think Nabil Qureshi's books would be a good guide. Yes. And, you know, Muhammad said that uh, in the Quran, if you want to check the veracity or truth of my teachings, yeah. you know, check with the people of the book, check the Old and New Testament. So Muhammad did yeah. encourage them to study the Bible. And so... That's also a great point you bring up to 
go and study the Bible and, and you know, what does it say about Abraham and Jesus yeah. and, and these yeah. others? Yeah, fantastic. And, Noah, and, and also with Muhammad, he also uh, taught that if you want to live, live as though you would die a long time. Like, and you need to go and he would say, go and study as far as China. Like, you have to really go far to, to seek out knowledge. And he really put a lot of emphasis on education and knowledge. So again, that would be something that resonate with a lot of Muslims, you can emphasize that point as well. So the apologetic ministry would be very appealing to a lot of Muslims if you can come through that approach. Fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Padme and her remarkable journey from Islam to Judaism to finally to faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, we've had to uh, protect her identity so we can't reveal too much information about her, unfortunately. I'm sure that you'll understand. But Padme, Thank you for sharing that wonderful story with us. I'm sure it's going to touch uh, many lives for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much, Pat, for having me on this show. I'm, I'm really, really, it's such a, it has been such a big honor. Thank you. Thank you. We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your friends. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Evidence and Answers.